souls trudging through millimeters of snow and the threat of ice. Uh, I'm thrilled to be with you tonight. It's uh, the weakest winter I've had in uh, 12 winters here. Um, and I, that's great. I'm glad, it's, uh, I'm glad it's not that tough. But I'm um, glad to see everyone tonight and um, very excited about what we're studying together in the Word. Um, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, looking at spirit-filled, spirit-filled childhood. What the Bible says about the effect of the Holy Spirit filling the believer who is a child before his or her parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth, is our text for tonight. And we need God the Holy Spirit to be our teacher our mentor, our paraclete. So let's seek his work in us. And uh, if you have any sins you need to confess, of course, you always want to do that. And this would be a good opportunity. But I'll give you a moment for silent prayer and then we'll open in prayer. Father, we recognize that by your design, we are responsible to admit ourselves to you, that that's why you made us for yourself. Thank you that for each of us, as we've considered who you are and what you expect of us, we've counted this cost and said this is why we're here. So many on earth will never come to this understanding, this awareness that our life is an eternal purpose. We praise you for that grace. And now, Father, we're going to consider what you've told us about the youngest, about the most vulnerable and impressionable. And we ask that you would strengthen us. It's our constant prayer for wisdom, knowing that you'll give it abundantly and abrade not when we ask. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think God made the small, the baby animals cute because he likes it that way. I think, I know he's an artist, and he thinks that that is adorable. Uh, that's a kitten. I mean, it's almost hard to say a cub, because it's so little. Uh, that baby lion there with uh, his daddy, standing over him, ready to swat him around as necessary. And uh, it's just an adorable picture that kind of captivates our imagination. I love lions, I really do. I love what C.S. Lewis did with lions in the Chronicles of Narnia, keying really off of Genesis 49 and how one from Judah would be a lion's whelp, who would be the lion of the tribe of Judah. And um, this image was in my mind, uh, something like this, a, a male lion with his cub, when I first thought about how to illustrate what we're talking about for children. Because the, the story of the picture is before and after. This is somebody who can be something greater and somebody who is something greater. This is all that potential locked into that design God gave within that genetics of that lion. If everything goes well, in the right circumstances, we're going to see that little guy go from something so cute to something so lethal so majestic, so powerful, and mighty. 
And uh, that's, that's an image of, mat- of maturity, of spiritual growth. The reason I bring this up tonight is because we're talking about the Christian spiritual life as Paul directly addresses the effects of the Holy Spirit on the main task and mission of childhood, of what, what is the, the primary job assignment God has given children. And it doesn't say little children, it just says children, because we never stop honoring our parents. But um, this, is a, this is a thing people miss. Kids can't read the Bible yet when they're little because they haven't learned to read. So it's almost like we kind of wait. They don't really know yet. They don't really know what's going on, so you've got to let them kind of make their own decision. And then if, if at, te- at teenage years, if they do believe in Christ, then we'll do, you know, we'll baptize them and so forth. And I think that's a grave error because of the way the Apostle Paul communicates this. Everybody in the Christian household has Christian duty empowered by the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. So let's review a little bit before we get into the text uh, what we've done in terms of the spiritual life. I believe we've discerned from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 and Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, a paradigm, a pattern, God's design for Christian spirituality. And it works like this. First of all, God issues a command. The command of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Apostle Paul, which is our responsibility, is given in Ephesians 5.18. Be filled by the Spirit. Then we either obey or don't obey. But if you want to be spiritual, you obey the command with an attitude of humility and an act of faith. And it is not just uh, rote obedience without a reflectiveness. There's an attitude that goes along with this command. And I said, well, um, how do I get that out of be filled by the Spirit? It's a passive imperative. You are to let this happen, to not stop it from happening. And as we watch the Scriptures, for example, in Romans chapter 6, our job as believers who are uh, to consider ourselves alive in Christ and dead to sin is to reckon ourselves and uh, reckon our members as instruments of God and present ourselves to God for His use. And so this is humility and an ongoing uh, belief, a faith in God. Now, I didn't say a faithfulness because I don't believe that you have to be faithful and trustworthy and dependable and, com- and, and, and those things. That's what God is in order to be filled by the Spirit. I think this is the result of the filling of the Spirit. But I think you must have an active faith, an ongoing trust in God and what He said for, uh, as kind of a baseline. And so what, what we have to do to get here is we've got to remove all the obstacles. Uh, R- Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, remove the, the sin that easily entangles us and the encumbrances so that you can run the race. And this involves personal sin. This involves um, the, the things that you may not consider particularly sinful, but are distractions. Um, and distractions from what? From what God has commanded, because uh, how can we know what he's commanded unless we focus on the word? That's the thing that can help you measure whether you're distracted or whether there are obstacles is is your attentiveness on the word where it needs to be on a daily basis and are you one who wants to live it who finds yourself doing and thinking along the lines of the scriptures and what god has said his self-revelation and i think this introduces as you're in the word it introduces the other commands we find there in the text Then uh, you've got to choose. 
find a command in Scripture and say, no, are we spiritual? Are we walking by the Spirit? No, letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within you includes keeping what it says. That's what God the Son tells us, for example, in John chapter 14, that if we love Him, we keep His commands, all through the, the upper room discourse. And so the commands you find in the Word, while depending on the Spirit for your ability to do these commands, and um, let, let me illustrate that briefly. If you go to uh, Galatians chapter 5, a couple before, uh, it's one before Ephesians. So Galatians 5, you have this statement about what the Holy Spirit does in you. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faith, uh, wait, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there's no law. Um, those are things that are described as the fruit of the Spirit. Abiding in Christ will bear this fruit. It'll, it'll happen. It's what the Holy Spirit does with us. And that's the way it's portrayed in Galatians 5. But if you flip over your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter commands the supplying of these following virtues in 2 Peter 1.5. For this very reason also applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, your moral excellence, knowledge, and your knowledge, supply self-control, fruit of the Spirit, and your self-control, perseverance, that could be parallel to patience or synonymous with patience, gentleness, and your perseverance, godliness, and your godliness, brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness, love, that's the fruit of the Spirit is love, these are commanded to be supplied by us. We're commanded to do these, to live these. Colossians 3 says, put on a heart of compassion, and it's the same fruit of the Spirit that you're commanded to bring forth. And yet in Galatians 5, the Holy Spirit does it. Here, you're commanded to do it. And so are there different categories of love? Like, this is love for me, or this is the fruit of the Spirit. No, it's the work of the Spirit in us as we make our choice. And that's why, that's why I'm summarizing this way. Choose to obey the commands. What was that? Oh, okay, thank you. I, I mean, I'm thinking, is that outgoing or incoming? Okay. Um, that used to be a question. I was the once in a community. We asked that question on a regular basis. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> um, well, the, depending on the Spirit of God for the ability to um, make these choices. And so you're walking by the Spirit, and yet you're supplying. And that's what the Holy Spirit's in you to equip you to do. Philippians 2, 12, 13, I think, is your... You know, God is working in you both to want and to do what God wants. And then at the end of the process, when we've actually loved or done what he's commanded, generally it'll be some aspect of love and, and uh, the other uh, clear statements that we have uh, from the Lord Jesus that he expects of us. A new commandment I give you that you love one another as I've loved you, for example. Um, we can say that was the fruit of the Spirit. That was God working in me. And, and somebody else can look at you and say, look at what you've done. You've this and this, and you've arranged this, and you got up early, and you worked hard, and you, and you, and you will say, yeah, and there's no way I'm that person unless God the Holy Spirit is working in me, and so it's still the grace of God. And so I think this is a helpful paradigm to understand what we're talking about. We're talking about Christian spirituality or the Christian way of life, the walk by the Spirit. In Ephesians 5.18, you have our command as we've looked at many times, do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but rather be filled by the Spirit. And I'm very careful about this. I don't think that you 
um, are the, the medium and then the Holy Spirit is the liquid who you're, you're filled by him in some sort of mystical sense. I don't think that's what it means. The Holy Spirit has come into your heart to abide forever. According to Galatians, you cannot let, you can't get rid of the Holy Spirit, but you can grieve him and quench him. Grieving Ephesians 4.30, quenching 1 Thessalonians 5.19. And so in our understanding of, of biblical pneumatology or what the Bible teaches about the work of the Spirit, there's a difference between I'm indwelled by Him and I'm filled by Him. There's a difference between He's in me to do this work and then me submitting to Him to do that work. The, the be filled by the Spirit, the uh, passive imperative. And so I've brought out uh, that grammar quite a bit. But then you have the results of the filling in 519 through 21, which we're examining the last one, with the result that you speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with the result that you sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord, with the result that you give thanks at all times for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God the Father, and finally with the result that you submit one to another in the fear of Christ. In this case, I'm going to go with King James on that last piece, with the result that you submit one to another. That's a better translation than... Uh, to one another. It's a technical, it's a quibble. But um, I've mentioned many times, verse 21 is used as the excuse for saying there is no authority in marriage because we're mutually submissive. Everybody's under everybody. And there's no, and that breaks down authority structures, which is absurd given the rest of the passage as we've seen uh, a, a great deal. Let me show you the absurdity of saying submit to one another means that everybody has equal authority over everyone else. We're about to talk about parents and children. That's not, and, and it's all governed by this. He's talking from now on in verses 22 through 6, 9, Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, 9. It's the outflow of submitting one to another. In other words, parents do submit to their children, but not to their authority. They submit to God's in, intention for their needs. And that means that you become their servant, but not their subordinate. Okay. So you put on the towel, Jesus is the Lord of all, and yet he's washing the disciples' feet. You see, that's the, that's the image. That it's humility and it's service, but you're still in charge. And that's what everybody who gets involved in Christian work, whether it's marriage or your children or work or whatever you find yourself doing, you're going to find yourself in that position. So all the household relationships are going to be addressed in verses uh, 522 through 69. So 522 through 6.9 all are governed by this concept of hupakuo to submit one to another, to submit, to put under. That's what it means, to put under. And so obviously this involves both concepts of humility and authority. It must address the question of authority, but it primarily is questioning the word humility. Do you know what humility means? It's a great word. Most people don't. It's a great word. Do you know what humility is? Humility is the recognition of what God made you. It's the truth about who you are. False humility is I'm nothing. Oh, shucks, I ain't nothing special. When secretly, well, we know we are pretty special. That's false humility. But we know we're supposed to say that. We're supposed to say I'm nothing special. But the Bible says that that's arrogance for us to say that we're nothing special. Why? Because God made you in his image. He made you for himself. God made you. That gives you eternal value. Not because of how great thou art, but because of how great he is. So humility is not saying I'm nothing or I'm worthless or I'm a wretched sinner, although we are wretched sinners, and it's humility to say that. We are God's image bearers who are broken by our sin. 
And if you're a sinner saved by grace, then say that. And so the truth about who I am is, I think, one way to look at true humility. The Lord Jesus exhibited the way humility acts and thinks when he said, nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. You know you've got a bead on humility when you're saying, I don't, it's not about my priorities or my preferences. Get, get that out of the way and let's look at God and say, Father, what do you want? And when you've substituted wills, I think you've found something about humility. Authority is the, as I've said, I believe authority is best described throughout the scriptures as the right to make the decision. The right to decide. You can decide whether or not to obey a command of a duly constituted authority. You have self-authority, self-governance. You need to decide whether you will do what you're told to do by a higher authority. And when the person with the duly constituted higher authority makes the decision, hey, we need to go do this, and you, with governance over yourself, have to then say yes or no to that, that's an act of self-government. So that when my children, under my authority, say yes, sir, which I require, so they'll learn adults and children and, and respect and get good jobs and be well thought of as they grow up because they know how to be respectful of, of their elders. When my children say yes, sir, and make the choice of self-governance to, to choose to do what the higher authority said, that's a major important transaction that's gone on in them. But that's what I mean by authority is the right to make decisions, and it happens at every level. The higher authority makes the decision, and then the lower authority under that person then has to decide yes or no, will I submit to that duly constituted authority. It's a constant battle. It's a constant decision. And if you're like me, it's a constant thought process you have to go through. Well, who are they to say? Oh, yeah, they're the person with the right to say. And now I've got to choose to say yes, sir. Am I the only one who struggles with that? No. Every one of us deals with that because unless we're talking about Jesus Christ, every authority over us is a sinner that's selfish. And um, no matter how selfless they try to be, Sometimes we get burned because of their sin nature showing up. Everyone must have humility, clearly from the Scriptures, but not everyone has the same authority, and that's vital. It's vital to, to connect to this because if you're not in charge, don't pretend to be in charge. But when you are in charge, you've got to be in charge because every authority proceeds from God, Romans 13.1. And so when God says, here's the stewardship, you do it, you better show up for, for, for work and do it. So we really value the concept of authority, but not everyone has the same authority. The low authority is always the first in Paul's list. Wives, submit to your husbands, and then husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Parents, fathers, train your children. Slaves, submit to your masters. Masters, do not abuse your slaves. It's always the lower authority addressed first in the thing, and I believe this is the reason. Because submission to higher authority is the most obvious example of submission. When there's an authority issue, that's the, most, that's the easiest way to see the concept of putting yourself under. So that's the, that's the topic, and that's what he's going for. There's another reason why I think he talks about these things first. Why does he talk about the kids before he talks about the parents? Because in some and many ways, it's much more difficult to be the lower person under the, under the higher authority. You have less self-determination. See, in my house right now, it is not necessarily a moral issue if the dishes in the dishwasher get put away right now. Now, we could argue about over time, that may become a moral issue. But right now, it is not necessarily a moral issue. Everybody with me? Moral, right or wrong. That is wrong. Those dishes need to be put. When? But if I say to my son, the time is 7 o'clock and the dishes need to be put up by 7.15, for him 
by God's authority structures, the way he's delegated things, it becomes a moral issue for him that the dishes are put away by 715 because it's, on, it's now on his, his responsibility because I told him to. And I have the authority to make that decision, Nespa, do I not? Yes, I, I am, in fact, morally responsible to help him see that this is how life works. I'm fulfilling a moral imperative, not in the specific thing, but in the, the, the nature of the thing that I'm teaching him how to live. And so it became moral for him that dishes are put up now. Wasn't moral until I said it. And that becomes a matter of personal sin in this child's life between him and God if I say it and he doesn't do it. Now think about that. He will need to go to the throne of grace at 716, unless there was some prevent, like, you know, the Lord willing, like God's prevented us through an act of God and I wasn't able to put the dishes away because there was an earthquake and so forth. But aside from that, and he's just frittering and he doesn't do what he's told. Now at 716, he needs to go to God in 1 John 1, 9 and say, my father told me to put this up and I, in my heart, said no and disobeyed your command that we're going to see to obey my father. You see, that's a hard thing. I am establishing a new bounds of morality, of moral choices for my child to submit to. Oh, what a power I have and what a horror it is for them when I fail, when I make the wrong choice, when I don't exert that authority properly and say, uh, and give them something that they need to, to do. And they, and they have no moral responsibilities because there's nothing binding upon them. And so you can see why uh, when you have a higher authority, it's a little easier because you're freer. You have someone constraining you. You ever heard of micromanagers, micromanagement? You've heard of that? Right on. Yeah. You had a, a micromanager in the Lego movie? Okay. How about that? Someone, someone says, hey, hey, scout or whatever your nickname is at work. Chief, some, some way of saying you're the boss, but we really mean you're the subordinate. Hey, tiger. Hey, boss. Someone, the boss comes up and calls you boss. It means they're the boss. They're just, hey, champ. Go get them, tiger. When they, when they show up and say, so I put you on charge of this project. Hey, thank you. I've been working on it 16 hours a day for the last eight straight days. Yeah, so anyway, I just wanted to go back and redo everything you've done because it just isn't exactly how I would have done it. And that, that's a, that, that leader just failed in several different ways. To supervise, to properly direct, to give g- proper guidance, and now they're micromanaging and you are miserable because you're a lower position of authority. They have the right to do this, but everybody suffers. You see, it's a hard thing, and that's why Paul, I think, lists them first because you need the Holy Spirit to be a wife and a husband. You need the Holy Spirit to be a child and deal with this sinful authority over you or to be a father and deal with sinful children. We need the Holy Spirit to equip us as slaves and masters. That's the worst one, isn't it? The slave and master, which is not interchangeable with parents and children or husbands and wives at all. Of, of course, we would want to really hold fast to this. Uh, we will be accused of saying women who are to submit to their husband's authority will be accused of saying that that makes them slaves to their husbands. And we don't teach that at all. Fellow heirs of life in 1 Peter 3, 7, we teach the scriptures on this. There is authority in marriage. There is headship. But what, what I'm trying to show you is um, there's an order that God establishes and these, these household relationships are hard. <clears throat> 
We move to the children and parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it will go well with you and you may be long-lived on the earth. One translation, long-lived on the earth. Here's some detail. One lexicon had an interesting statement about this word children, techna, technon. It's, it's the word that emphasizes not your age, but the relationship to parents, those that are born to parents. So I'm a child. I'm, a, I'm this. A pideon is not this. Now, I'm not a pideon, but I'm a technon. Pideon is another word that you'll read for children, and it means someone under training, under instruction. And so um, I wanted it to be Pideon. Little children, obey your parents. Because I don't want to obey my parents now that I'm an adult. But it doesn't say Pideon, it says Technon. Now, we all know that once you have your own household, there's a different arrangement. We're all happy with that. There has to be. And we know from other scripture, Genesis 2.24, you leave your family, cleave to your wife, two become one flesh, that is at least a clear break in this obedience like under your parents' authority situation. We can all acknowledge that. It's kind of common sense. So let's talk about the children, the pideon, the the little children in the house, because I think that's the emphasis. He's talking about those in the same household. This is the household code. Marriage, children, slaves, masters, small business out of the household, if you will. Children, obey your parents and the Lord. The, the, The Bauer lexicon says that technon in the vocative case, as it's used here, um, or you could argue that's like a vocative case, when it's used vocatively is a way of expressing affection. And um, I'm certain that God and his apostles have great affection for the poor children in our households who have us as their authority. And so he starts with them because you have the Holy Spirit in you to equip you to do everything that God expects which you couldn't do anything without him. Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing in John fifteen five, But because we have the spirit of God in us, we're able to do these things. Here's what you do to submit in the power of the Holy Spirit. You obey your parents. This word obey, hupakuo. It's the same word that we uh, have seen. Um, it's... The word we, we see for obedience regularly, but it's not hupotasso, to submit to one another. It's a more specific word about hearing and what you do when you hear something you obey. It's the way you say the word obey in Greek, hupokuo. Hupotasso is to set yourself under, to submit. But hupokuo is to hear and obey. Whatever you say, I'll do. That's the way this word works. Akuo means to hear. It's what you do with your ears. And it's very similar. It's similar to the Hebrew usage, Shema, is to hear. And so when God says Shema Yisrael in Hebrews, or, uh, um, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema, the, the heart of the, of the Old Testament is the Shema because Deuteronomy is the heart of the Old Testament. Shema is the heart of Deuteronomy. When, when God says Shema, he's not saying, listen to what I have to say and then go figure out what you want to do later. He's saying, listen and obey, hear me. And that's what you have uh, in the, brought into the, the Greek. Obey your parents. And then this is very interesting, in the Lord. And you have to interpret, what does he mean by in the Lord? I know what. The Christian children who have the Holy Spirit 
are supposed to obey their parents if their parents are also Christians, parents in the Lord. So if you're a Christian child and your parents aren't believers, well, I don't have anything to tell you from this verse. That would be the wrong interpretation. Sometimes I'm encouraged that um, if I say the wrong thing first, people will get the wrong idea that that's the right thing. But I always do that because if you have three interpretations, I always give you the wrong two first and then the right one is the third one. So I gave you the wrong interpretation first. It doesn't mean that your parents are Christians. It's the same thing we've had before. Wives, submit to your husbands in the Lord as unto the Lord, as it would be appropriate for you to serve the Lord and for his sake as unto the Lord, you submit to your husbands. So that it's really about Christ, not about knucklehead. Sometimes he is a knucklehead. And you shouldn't call him that, but we know that he's being that. Sometimes, um, sometimes Abigail has to submit to Nabal, and it's horrible. But it's, that's the arrangement, and you need the Holy Spirit. I mean, we're not talking about easy stuff. We're talking about the hard stuff. It, it, this isn't given in, as, in the pinnacle book of Paul's epistles on the, the mystery of the church, one new man in Christ made of Jew and Gentile. We're not in this pinnacle book of Paul's spiritual life discussion to, uh, to say, hey, uh, there's a bunch of stuff that you have to do that's really going to be easy. Don't worry about it. I, I might li- list some stuff in Ephesians chapter 5. I might just say some stuff at the end. But this is the hardest part of life is the household where the people know you best and your old natures are bouncing off of each other. And so obey your parents in the Lord is, guess what? The toughest thing. The Old Testament ends with a prophecy that the forerunner of Messiah is going to restore the hearts of parents to children. Why does the Old Testament end on that obscure thing? When, when salvation shows up, the prophet that prophesies the coming Christ is going to restore the hearts of sons to children and children, fathers and fathers to, to sons. What? It's because this household thing is the hardest thing. It's broken down. It's destroyed. It's in a total shambles. And um, interestingly, these authority structures restrict our freedom. They restrict our freedom of movement. You get, why don't guys want to get married? Because, well, a little time me down. They don't want to commit because they know that that changes your whole life and your whole sense of freedom. But guess what? This is a a blessing. Total freedom plus total sin nature. Lord Acton said it. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Right? We need these authority structures that that tie us down, that that limit our, our free expression of our sinfulness. They hem us in. And children need parents that train them and say, don't do that. And they, and they, they discipline and train them. This is a restriction on the lusts of our sin nature. And so what do we have today in our civilization? We have freedom. Oh, freedom, freedom. To what end? Freedom without any restrictions of any governance of self, parents and children, husbands, wives. That's completely missing. So what do we see? Overwhelmed systems, overwhelmed governance systems that are not designed to do the things they're trying to do. Social workers. So one social worker I knew who was a caseworker for the children and families in Connecticut, had 14 boys that he was the, the parent for. 14 that he was working their case and they were wards of the state and uh, was functioning as their parent. Teenagers. Yeah, right. He's, he's doing the father thing for 14. No way. He's doing what he can because we have a broken system. You know what? We need to hire more caseworkers them casino revenues ain't really covering it okay we're going to hire more caseworkers how are you going to pay for that i don't know but when they retire we'll make sure to cover their retirement for 40 years and so uh we have a state 
we're trying to become Detroit financially. I'm just pointing out by illustration. You can't hire more caseworkers because we're already bankrupt. So we don't have any money for these services, but what happened here? Why are all these boys without fathers? Because we weren't careful to obey God with our sexuality. We were not careful to commit to marriage. In marriage, we weren't careful to say this is a covenant that we don't undo. Uh, it just didn't work out anymore. The kids will understand. They'll be, they'll be fine. Right? And we break this, this covenant and destroy their lives. Or um, we make babies and leave. And, and the whole civilization is, is this dis- disintegration and, um, because we won't submit to God's authority and do it His way. Let's get back to the text. In the Lord is talking about the way you are to think about your parents. Not that they're the Lord, but that the Lord wants me to obey my mom and dad so that I'm not just doing it to please mom and dad anymore. I'm not just saying yes and obeying them when they say, here's what I want you to do. Go make your bed. Please go make your bed. It's time. We don't say, okay, because if I don't, they won't feed me or whatever. Whatever it takes. But, uh, if I don't do it, then they won't, uh, they won't do what I want. It'll, it won't go well. They'll, they'll be upset with me. Instead of thinking that way about the minimums we can get away with and, and really living a mediocre life, a wasted life, we say, God has given me an opportunity to serve him by how I treat these people that are telling me what to do. And that is the secret to spirit-filled childhood. I will look at my mom and dad, I'll look at my mom and dad as people that I can obey God for. I can obey them, sorry, I can obey them for God. And as I say yes to mom, and as I help, and as I honor them, and as I try to, try to submit to their authority, what I'm doing is really worshiping Jesus Christ. What I'm really doing is bringing honor to my Savior and I'm living out my Christian life. And that's something the Holy Spirit equips me to do. So be filled by the Spirit with the result that you submit one to another in the fear of Christ, 21. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And then there's a beautiful summary of what that looks like. God gives you his evaluation of a child. Do you know what God says about a child who obeys his parents in the Lord? It's a beautiful thing when you think about it. When I just read it in English, it doesn't jump out at me. But when I read it in Greek, it flies off the page, smacks me in the face and says, oh, I want that. Dikaios. My, my English translations all say right. This is right. And it's, it's fine. What does right mean? I've translated it righteous. I've translated it righteous, not because I think it's neat to have this as, a, as, as slang lingo in 60s uh, R&B music, righteous. It's righteous because we're talking about the character of God. The chaos is... Uh, the adjective that goes along with the kaiosune, the noun, for the concept of righteousness. And now we're saying God has a verdict that he renders about the behavior of a child who chooses, for Jesus Christ's sake, to honor and obey my parents. Jesus, God, is saying righteous. It doesn't say dikaio, uh, but does anybody know what that word means? It's an, it's an, it's a verb. 
We translate that word, justify. But when you pronounce something to kaios, you are dekaio, you're declaring it righteous. And this is a declaration of righteousness. Not of eternal life, not that the kid is a Christian. That's not what it, we're talking only to Christians who have the Holy Spirit empowering them to obey their parents. But look what it says in that act, righteous, pleasing to God. This is what pleases him, his very own character. So if you've got unfair parents, and you do, and you say they're not Jesus, but Jesus is. There's only one person that's Jesus, and it's not any of us. Although I'm in Christ, and for me to live is Christ, but I'm not him. So I'm a flawed ruler, but he's not. When the child says and looks past me to Jesus Christ, and obeys me for his sake. That's an act of worship with which Christ is pleased. And I think that's what he's talking about. I think that's the whole point of bringing up the children in the passage. Do you need the Holy Spirit to do that? You do. You need God working in you to be able to do the things he wants you to do. Can you do this in the energy of the flesh? Well, you can. You can obey your parents for... uh, for other reasons than Christ's sake, and other power than the Spirit's power, relying upon Him, but you shouldn't. Because what we want to do, and all that we do, is what Jesus thinks is something. Without me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. When I serve Him and do what I think He wants me to do, but I'm doing it in the energy of the flesh, I think that's grieving the Spirit, quenching the Spirit. I think that's not, in Jesus' evaluation, anything. And so it's not the fruit of the Spirit. You want this, in other words, to be God working in you. Can children learn that? I'm about to read the next, in verse 4, that we're supposed to teach them that. Like equipping them to obey is how they're pleasing to God. And so what's my role in a child's, my child's spiritual life? If I don't insist on obedience and teach them obedience and to love obedience, what am I doing to their spiritual life where that's how they please God? See, I, I don't think that way in my flesh. My flesh, it's about me. They need to obey me because it's me. In fact, I'm going to get angry if they don't because it's me. And I should be obeyed. I'm the father. I am in charge. Now, I know that everyone struggles with this. But if we put it into its spiritual frame and say, this child has a spiritual life, and if I don't insist and train obedience, then Jesus Christ is not pleased with the righteous acts of this child, then they're missing out. The baby, the, chi- the children are missing out. And we love our children. We love them and we want them to have everything God wants them to have. So it turns out the thing that we don't want to do, obey, is the thing we need to do the most. And I think that's pretty powerful. Now he quotes the Old Testament. He goes to a fee- or, uh, Exodus 20 and says, Honor your father and your mother. But it doesn't say your mother. I thought it did. It just says your father and mother. What was I looking at? I, I, see, I did a scribal error and I saw Sue twice and translated it twice, but it's only in there once. Sue. Um, Sue's like, what? No, this is S O U right here, you, of you. Honor the father of you and the mother, which is commandment prote the first commandment in 
epangelia in a promise or with a promise, which is the first commandment with a promise. So uh, you have a command in the, Paul's translation that's Greek, and we'll look at the, uh, the Septuagint translation in a minute and see Paul is actually, I think he's translating straight from the Hebrew here. Some people say he always quotes the Septuagint. He doesn't always. Um, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. Now this is Paul, this is Rabbi Paul, commenting on the scriptures, on the Old Testament. He's, he's taking us to Exodus 20 and saying, read the commandments. This is the first one, Exodus 20, 12, that actually gives a promise that goes along with the command. And uh, that's an intriguing observation Paul makes. See, Paul teaches us to observe the text. And, um, and he also gives us his interpretation of it. But it's the first commandment with a promise, and then he states the promise. He quotes again the rest of verse 12, so that it will go well with you and you will live long on the earth. So that it will go well with you and so that. It's, these are uh, subjunctive moods, if you're interested. And it, it will is, it is the purpose for why um, you obey this. You honor your father and mother. Is so that it will go well, so that it will be or go well with you, and so that you will live or be long on the earth. This is a fun word. I mean, this is you're just going to keep you up all night. It's macrochronios. <sighs> Drop the mic. <laughs> Macro means big. Macro evolution's the one that we're like, uh-uh. Never seen it, nobody's ever seen it ever. In the 6,000 years of recorded history, no one's ever seen macroevolution. Microevolution, okay, birds get longer beaks and shorter beaks and things like that. You have mutations within species, but um, we've never seen a crossover of species. Never been observed. I'm, I'm on the, uh, I'm not to use this uh, illustration too much, but um, I'm a big, no, I don't believe in my macroevolution um, as a matter of observ- observational science, but macro means big and micro means small, right? And so this is, that's where, that's where this comes from. I'll just spell it out for you. M-A-K-R-O. You can see the A and the K and the O, the P shape is an R, and that, that U is actually an M. You can kind of make a cursive M out of the, out of the moo. Macro. And then that X is a key, which says, and then the R again, O-N-I-O-S, chronios, chronios. Well, chronos, time, you know, the God that Zeus had to kill. Oh, I'm sorry, chronos, the God, that's time. That's the mythology, but it's Greek mythology, chronos. Time, there's several different words for time in Greek, but this means big time. See, you're up all night now. Big time, so that you can have big time on the earth. Big, big time. But it means, not its etymology, big time. It means a long time, so that you will, you will be a long time upon te epites gaze, upon the earth. Now, here's the interesting thing that's always, I've always questioned this and never really studied it in detail. On the earth, does this mean Eretz? Is this the word for land? Because if you watch Genesis and Exodus and the rest of the Pentateuch and into Joshua, the land is a big deal. It turns out to be a big deal for all of Scripture. And it's the part of God's promises to Abraham that you can't spiritualize. I really don't think you can. I mean, it's been tried. People have always tried to say, oh, the land, that just means heaven. 
but except that it's got boundaries with rivers and it's geographically identified and it's forever and it's you know all through the patriarchal narratives and through history we have this expectation of land that's why i'm a literalist about the abrahamic covenant and god's promises to abraham isaac and jacob or israel the the land is always promised to this seed um, who is to be a blessing to all the peoples um, the abrahamic covenant so I wondered, is, is Ephesians 6.3 and Exodus 12, or 20.12 saying about the land that they're promised? Because Eretz, the word for land, is sometimes translated earth and sometimes it's translated land. And I thought, surely that's what it would say. But nay, nay, that's not the word. There are several different words for this. And this is the word where we get uh, Gaia. Gaia is um, in the new paganism, which to say, no, this is the old paganism. It's the new old paganism. Gaia is the goddess that the witches worship, Wiccans worship, um, as the earth, Mother Earth, Gaia. And here uh, you see Gais, Gaia, the word for this um, earth. That's why I've translated it, earth. Now, what's the other word for world in Greek? Anybody? (coughs) Come on now. Yeah, the cosmos. Totally different word, sometimes with the same meaning. Sometimes the cosmos is the physical location, like the gaze, like the Gaia. <coughs> Sorry, but sometimes cosmos means the administration of the earth, the system that is administered right now by Satan and his fallen angels. But here, the word is gaze. Never fear, it's a translation. Let's go see what the original says. Paul's quoting Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. And he says, Honor your father and mother. And the way he does that is he says it with this. He starts off the same way Paul does in his interlinear almost translation. He starts off with the word for to make weighty or heavy. To be heavy or weighty is a verb to describe what is glorious or honored. You could translate it fat. Because the the wealthy person is heavy, has a lot of weight, either personally or in whatever way. And so there's a relationship between those concepts. But here it's in the stem that says, make this thing that, that, make it weighty, make it honored. And so we call it to honor someone, to honor your father and your mother. There is the pronoun here in the, in the um, Hebrew. Honor your father and your mother so that they will be long. They will be long. Arak in uh, the Hithil stem to make it long. They will, they will be long or make long. Yamim, Yamika, that's your days. Upon Ha'adama. Not Eretz, but the earth. Now, this is really cool. Now, look here. Look, you, you, can, you can follow this. Watch this. This is for you right here. Watch this. See that word? A-D-A-M up on the screen. See where it says A-D-A-M? There's a reason it's spelled that way, and it sounds like the first man, Adam, who was made, what was he made of? Dirt or earth. It's the same word. It also has to do with being red. Like the dirt is red. 
Some people think. The Hebrew mind says the dirt's red. East Texas, they say so too. But uh, Adama is the dirt, is the earth. And it's the way you say the earth with respect to the physical location of the physical ground. In other words, not the land bounded by the rivers. It's the earth, the ground. So where you're standing, you get to have a long time standing here is the point on terra firma. I think it's pretty cool. Which the Lord your God is giving you. Okay, now we have a question. What is God giving you? Is he giving you long days on the dirt? Or is he giving you long days on the dirt God's giving you? See, that's a question. That was a legitimate question. Is it that he's giving you long days? And so we, we have the, the clause, and then he talks about the earth, and he goes back to that long days. Or is he saying the earth which God is giving you? And I believe it's the latter. I think it's to the piece of, of terrain God is giving you, which makes it a reference to Haaretz, to the land of Israel. I don't call it Palestine. The Romans did that, and it was anti-Semitic when they did it. The Philistines, naming, the Romans naming Israel after the Philistines. Come on. They haven't been there for a long time. I don't call it the Holy Land. That's too ambiguous. This place is Israel. The place God promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is what's intriguing to me. Paul doesn't quote the last phrase. He doesn't say which the Lord is giving to you. The Lord your God is giving to you. He just says that your days may be long. They may live long on the earth. Because what God is saying here to these children of Israel in a covenant relationship that he's established in chapter 19, and these are the stipulations of the covenant that he made to build a nation, and that's what the law is. It's the Mosaic law is God's stipulation for a covenant that he has made with a specific people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, Jacob and his, uh, Jacob's sons. And Moses is mediating this covenant. The covenant people are promised this covenant land. And so the earth that the Lord is giving to them is a reference to this promised land. Now, who's he talking to? This is the Exodus generation. These are the people that have been brought out of Egypt to go where? To the promised land, to Canaan, to go kick the Canaanites out of it and exterminate them. The iniquity of the Amorite is now full and they have to be destroyed. And God is sending his lawnmower out of Egypt into Canaan. But that is to dispossess the Canaanites and therefore to inherit, same word in Greek or Hebrew, dispossess and inherit the Canaanites' uh, land and appropriate it for themselves as God is giving it to them. And so the point is, in Exodus 20, within this covenant that God is cutting between himself and Israel, he is saying uh, the land that God is giving to you. But when Paul quotes it in Ephesians 6, he doesn't say that the Lord is giving to you. He just says that, it's on, that your life will be long on the earth. And um, I think Paul appropriates the statement of this covenant between God and Israel for the use of the church, just like he does in 2 Timothy 3.16. I was reading uh, some Chafer today, and I really appreciate Lewis Sperry Chafer. I was reading his uh, discussion of the spiritual life in, um, I promise the Septuagint, but I'm not going to, y'all are tired. Um, Chafer wrote, um, he did a spiritual and a great systematic theology I'd recommend, especially volume six, the, 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 the volume dealing with the Holy Spirit and emphasizing the way God's spirit works in our lives at the end of that volume. And, um, I was reading in there, and he was talking about um, 
the difference between dispensationalism and covenant theology. Covenant theology is um, not that much older historically than dispensationalism. Um, some of the first articulations, in other words, people weren't really systematizing these kinds of questions about the relationships between the Testaments and the peoples and things until, um, I mean, covenant theologians go back to the early 1700s. It's not like Augustine thought of this. Augustine said no millennium, but he didn't invent covenant theology as a system. But when you ask these kinds of questions, you basically have covenant or dispensationalism or some, some hybrid between the two. New covenant theology is trying to move toward dispensationalism. Progressive dispensationalism is trying its best to become covenant theology. Um, but Chafer, who was a systematizer of dispensationalism, said the covenant system doesn't recognize um, uh, the spiritual life of the Christian because when you read the Westminster Catechism or the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith, I should say, um, when you get to what is the Christian responsible for today, all he's got is the Ten Commandments. And that's what Calvin did, and that's the Reformed position. The Reformed position is that the church then takes the, um, not the ceremonial law, but the moral aspects of the law, and then becomes bound because we're in, this, in a continual covenant from Abraham through the Mosaic, and, and it's just all one covenant. And so because of that view, then the, their view of spirituality is this command. And Chafer spent a lot of time showing in various places in Scripture that that's a misunderstanding of the covenant relationships established in Exodus and uh, how the new covenant works and, and so forth. And so um, the way Paul says to handle the text of Scripture and 2 Timothy 3.16 is well known, but I don't think it's often considered. I'm going to stand here and say, I do not believe we are parties to the Mosaic Covenant. I don't even believe the church, this might sound crazy, but I don't think the church is directly a party to the New Covenant. Because God promised the New Covenant to Israel and Judah in Jeremiah 31. And what Hebrews is talking about in a New Covenant replacing the Old, the Mosaic, we're still looking forward to the establishment of this new covenant in a believing Israel. I think we are with Christ, who is party with Israel, and we may have benefits of the new covenant, but I don't think we're covenant partners, like God tells Israel. I think, in other words, I'm holding out for a future for Israel. But I would say this, throughout all of Scripture, Torah means instruction. That's what the word means. It doesn't mean five books, doesn't mean Moses said, it's instruction. And everything God says is, is instruction in a sense. I would also say that Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.16 that the Old Testament is profitable. It is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And I think what we're supposed to do with everything God has given us from Genesis through Revelation is learn of God's righteousness. Even when it says in Israel, don't eat this kind of food, but you can eat this kind of food. I think there is a picture of God's righteousness. I don't think with the Seventh-day Adventists that you can't eat pork because it's, it's an unclean food and, and Yahweh is, uh, is, is not pleased because I've read the New Testament. And if God gave it for us for food, then we can eat it. And that's Romans. We need to deal with Romans before we start throwing away our heritage. When you go to mixed garments and the idea of polyester, I mean, if you're wearing a woven fabric of two different types of material, then 
I don't believe you are morally disobeying God because I don't believe you're a covenant partner in Israel. Uh, and I also don't think you're wrong for, for not going to the temple and conducting sacrifices according to the law. What I think is, if you, wear, um, if you recognize what God is showing in this picture of righteousness and even the mixed threads, you can understand the concept of righteousness. You can learn of righteousness from that law. And what the law said was that if you, if you wear a, a fabric that's wool and combine that with, with cotton and you weave these together, that's, that's wrong. I am Yahweh. You want to be of an unmixed, uniform material. What the picture is, it's not talking about whether the garment is immoral or moral. It's saying for the purpose of this ceremonial ritual people, I am showing my righteousness. I am other. I am consistent. I am whole. Be like me in my entirety, in my wholeness. It's a picture. And I think that's how the ceremonial stuff in the law works. And so that's why I will say when you get to something that's a direct reference to righteousness, like honor your father and mother, I don't have to be in a party to the Mosaic Covenant to be responsible for that. I am responsible for that. Paul says I'm responsible for that because it's a, it's a reflection of his righteousness. Honor your father and mother. Obey your parents for this is righteous. And so, um, so I don't believe, I'm with Paul, when he says that you're not under law, you're under grace. Romans 6.14, for example. And I think he's talking about the Mosaic Law. And I've died to the law and I'm alive to Christ because the law killed me and now I'm alive to Christ, Romans 7. I, I think this is Paul's view of law. But I need to learn of God's righteousness through all that he said. And there's a difference between being a covenant partner and saying I am covenantally bound to keep these laws and learning of God's righteousness and worshiping him for who he is through all that he said. And that's dispensational. That's the dispensational view of the Christian and the law. So, um, uh, he, Acts 15, don't fornicate, don't, don't drink blood, the animal's life is in its blood, don't eat strangled things, don't participate in, in idolatry. That's the law that the Christians gave, the, the elders in Jerusalem gave for the Jewish, uh, the Gentile Christians there in um, Acts chapter 15. And so um, I did want to cover that when Paul quotes the Mosaic Law. It's very important to understand everything that God said is eternal. Everything that God said is an eternal witness to who he is, and it's all Torah. It's Genesis through Revelation is instruction. And I think that's how we're supposed to consider it. It's all God-breathed. So I would challenge you to study the Scriptures closely. And if you find yourself working hard on Saturday, I will not think that our government needs to execute you. I don't think that that's... But, but that's what the Mosaic Law required. And it's, it's a very clear one of the 613 is you, you execute the Sabbath breaker. But I, that's the sign for God's Mosaic Covenant. That's for Israel. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time and your word, for the fellowship we enjoy, and for the love of, of, uh, of your person, your love that sheds abroad in our hearts. We thank you for teaching us and strengthening us, and we want to know you on your terms. So continue to work in our hearts and help us submit to you and obey what you've said. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.